Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there in Luke chapter 22 about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And just <clears throat> happens to work out that next uh, Lord's Day evening is the Lord's Supper here. The time of which this chapter is located, as we know, is the, the last week in the earthly journey of Jesus to the cross, but it's also the time of year when two feasts were kept in Israel. One of them is the Feast of the Passover. Uh, which happened on the, the Friday and it was immediately followed by another feast which lasted for a week which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread but since they basically ran into each other it wasn't surprising that the two of them combined began to be regarded as the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that's what Luke tells us there in the first verse. Every um, author of any book has to be selective in what they record about any event. And that's true of the biblical writers. Um, some of them, when they're describing the same incident, they don't always include the same details. Some may include information that the others don't even mention. And that happens with some of the details that Luke uh, provides. I would just like us to uh, think of four things, really, from this account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And they all begin with the letter P, which might make them easy to remember. But there's uh, plotting. We can see that in verses uh, 1 to 6. And there's <coughs> preparation. And that's described in verses 7 to 13. And then there's a promise in verses 14 to 18. And then there's participation in verses 15 to 20. So I just want us to think about these four things that Luke highlights. No doubt amongst the people who are gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, there would be a wide diversity of thoughts and attitudes and intentions. It was the Passover was, uh, as we know, it was a day that God uh, marked out to, for the people of Israel to remember his great act of deliverance at the Exodus. When, against all the possible human odds, he delivered his people by his great power. Uh, the, as we know, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt, and they were marked by 
powerlessness. They were unable to do anything to set themselves free. Egypt at that time was the most powerful uh, nation in the world and there was no one who could stand up to its military might and so on. But God in an extraordinary way came and delivered his people the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and so on. And they all, as it were, escaped by his great power and that particular event in their history was to be recalled. It wasn't merely to be remembered uh, in an intellectual sense and try and imagine what it was like um, to be going through those situations, but they had to remember the Passover because of the liberty it had brought to them. But of course, all that was a long time Prior to this time, Jesus and his disciples gathered, and they didn't just remember the Passover, sorry, the Exodus, they also would remember other times of great deliverance that God had provided, including the recovery of the nation from the exile, and again, they had been helpless. And God, in his great power, had arranged for the Babylonians to be defeated in a rather uh, unusual way when the Persians just dried up their water supply and were able to march in and, and take the city that way. But God delivered Israel. Uh, Persian rulers let them go back to their land and once again, They were free, in a certain sense, to worship God and do what they wanted, even though the Persians were still in overall control. Again, that was a long time in the past. By the time we get to the occasion that's described by Luke here, they're in bondage again this time to another power power of the Roman Empire and no doubt there were people wondering would God come and deliver them again we know from later on in Luke the next chapter that there had been an insurrection in the city some people led by Barabbas had tried to bring about liberty and we're not told any more about that particular attempt except that it had failed and Barabbas had been captured and so on. I'm sure the people were wondering could God come and do it again? Because after all there had been a kind of uh, progression in the abilities of their conquerors I mean, Egypt was powerful, but not as powerful as Persia. And of course, Persia was powerful, but not as powerful as Rome. Could God deliver them? And I suppose if they had any kind of um, awareness of themselves, they would actually know that there's more to, um, to 
lack of freedom than mere external circumstances. Because any of them that would be spiritually minded, well, they would sense that there was other powers that controlled them. Power of sin, the power of death. Would anyone ever come and deal with these powers? Other people, no doubt, uh, regarded the whole thing as a family get-together. Because that was the one place where they all had to go to, was Jerusalem. So whether they lived in the east or the west, or whatever part of the country, indeed of every part of the world, they met in the one place where they could be guaranteed to meet together was at these feasts in Jerusalem because they were all commanded to go up and do it. So it would be inevitable that they would be there uh, as family get-togethers. And we'll think about that uh, later on. But Luke chooses to focus on one particular group of people and what they were doing as the Passover drew near. And, of course, that is the chief priests and the scribes. Here's the religious rulers, and they're making plans. And, of course, it's to be expected that religious rulers would make plans. After all, it's a religious feast. There's a, a million or so pilgrims in the city, in addition to the number that stayed there the whole year round. And somebody's got to organize the whole process. And one would assume that that's what they should be occupied with. After all, the chief priest, it's his role to arrange for the Passover lamb and to, to um, make sure it's all suitable and so on. So we, we would imagine that they would be regarding this as a very... Uh, spiritual occasion for them in which they would be engaged in doing what the Lord wanted. But what we do find is they weren't thinking about that at all. What actually was in their minds as the Passover drew near it was very dark thoughts. What was in their mind as we can see from verse 2 is that they were seeking how to put him to death. But they had a problem. Everybody, as far as they could see, regarded Jesus with positively. Not everybody was um, convinced as to who Jesus was, but uh, they all had their own ideas. Some thought he was the Messiah. Others thought he was a prophet. Others thought he was a good teacher. It's a whole variety of what we could loosely call positive reactions to him. And therefore, any time that Jesus was there in the city, as we can see at the closing verses of the previous chapter, in verse 38 of the previous chapter, we find from early in the morning, 
on all these particular days, all the people came to the temple to hear him. And they're all uh, gathered there just eager to hear what Jesus has to say. And therefore it was not possible for the priests to work out um, how can they get him. And yet Luke tells us how they got their method. Because sadly, there in verse 3, Judas, we're told that in verse 4, he went and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Out of the closest disciples of Jesus, there's the man to deliver him up. It's a very solemn picture that's given there of Judas, isn't it? Satan entered into him. It's not the first time that this is said about Judas. But it is a very graphic description. You mean to remember that a year and a half or so before this, Jesus had fed the 5,000. And uh, that led to a discussion about what kind of leader he was going to be. And some of them, people, after, after participating in that miracle, they had assumed this is the man to be king. And they wanted to force him to be king, which is a kind of of unusual way of making a king. Because normally it's the king that forces the people. But anyway, they were determined to make him their king because, after all, if he could feed over 5,000 people from a handful of loaves and fish, well, nothing but prosperity lay ahead in their minds. But when Jesus uh, refused to become a king, they all abandoned him. After all, I mean, what's the point in their eyes? What's the point of somebody having all that power not being willing to use it? So they just gave up on him. And Jesus, as we know, at the end of John chapter 6, he asks the twelve, it's a very um, isolating question, isn't it? Will you also go away? And Peter, as usual, he responds and says, of course we won't. We'll be there, full of good intentions and all that. And Jesus' response is quite unusual, isn't it? He says, have I not chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. He doesn't say, one of you is a demon. But one of you 
is a devil. And John tells us that Jesus was speaking of Judas. So even back then, long before this particular incident, Judas's heart was dark. In John chapter 17, when Jesus prays, he says about his disciples, I have kept them all apart from the son of perdition. So in a certain sense, while the high priest might have been surprised to see Judas, we shouldn't really be surprised. And he goes and tells them, yeah, I'll find a nice quiet spot where there'll be nobody else around and then you can arrest them. And they give him some money. Of course, there is something quite intriguing about this. I mean, Luke is indicating, isn't he, that The devil thinks it's a good idea to put Jesus to death. I mean, that is what Luke is saying, isn't it? It'll be a good idea to put Jesus to death. The devil thinks that. Which, of course, tells us that the devil didn't understand the cross at all. He had no concept that the cross would be the means of Jesus providing liberty. That the cross, instead of being a disaster, would be a deliverance. The devil didn't understand that at all. So that's the plot. And we're just waiting to see what Judas will do. And that leads us to think about the preparation. The Passover could only be held in Jerusalem. They couldn't hold the Passover in Capernaum, and they couldn't even hold it in Bethany, which was two miles outside of Jerusalem. The Passover had always to be held in Jerusalem. And moreover... Uh, the Passover could only be held as a Passover meal, or sorry, as a family meal. You couldn't have a gathering of hundreds of people to keep the Passover. You couldn't uh, make a big invitation and say to uh, people down the road to come to the Passover. The Passover was always a family meal. And of course that raises the question, doesn't it? Who would Jesus have the Passover with? I mean, it is a real question. Because Mary, his mother, is in Jerusalem. I mean, we know that. Because in in two days' time, she's going to be standing at the cross looking at him. So, she's in Jerusalem. Will Jesus have the Passover with her? 
It's also likely that his brother James is there. Because we are told that um, after his resurrection, he appeared to James. So it is possible that the earthly family of Jesus is in Jerusalem. Is Jesus going to have the Passover with them? Because it will be an affirmation of who his family is. And we can see from the account that Jesus, he identified who he wanted to have the Passover with. And that was with this group of people, group of men. Of course, this wasn't the first time he had indicated that they were his family. Because we know that up in Capernaum on one occasion, um, Mary and the other and the siblings of Jesus, they came to take him home. And And someone said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you. And he turned and said, Who are my mother and my brother? And he pointed to his disciples. So here is Jesus again, indicating that his family are those who believe in him. And he arranges that quite obviously here with desire. Have I desired to eat this Passover with you? Now Jesus is fully aware of what Judas is planning. All Judas needs to find is where is Jesus going to keep the Passover? There's only going to be a handful of people at it. Whether it's his earthly family or whether it's this small group of disciples there's going to be hardly anybody there what happens if Judas finds out where the Lord's Supper is going to be instituted well if he does find out he'll just head off and tell the religious leaders if you go to this house there you will find him. And there will only be a handful of people with him. And I think that explains the rather unusual set of arrangements that Jesus engages in. Peter and John come up to him and ask him, where will we prepare for the Passover? Well, Jesus could have said to them, Go and do it in such and such an address. But if he had done that, Judas would have known where he was going. So instead, as we can see from verse 10, he gives them this rather unusual, unusual because a man didn't carry jars of water in those days. A very unusual sign, 
very unexpected sign. And I think the reason why this secretive way of identifying the address for the Passover is done by Jesus to make sure that there's no interruptions. He is determined to have the him and his close disciples gather together for this Passover. And Judas, he's going to be there. But he doesn't know where. And Jesus is taking great care, even though he's in charge of events. We can see he's in charge of events because he knows the man's going to be carrying the jar of water. And he also knows that if Peter and John follow that man, they'll go to a certain house, and that house, the master of it, will be very happy for Jesus to meet in his house. So Jesus takes great care to ensure that he'll be there with his disciples. Now the preparation of the Passover involved lots of things, but the main thing that had to be done in the building in which it would be held was to make sure there was no leaven. And there's Peter and John, and they've gone to this house, and they have to search for leaven. How much leaven do they have to get rid of? All of it. So that tells us they have to cover every inch of that room. And if they don't cover every inch of that room, there's a danger that eleven will be there. That's a picture, isn't it, of preparation for the supper. As far as the Passover was concerned, it was an external search. Just a crawl over every inch of the room, make sure there's no leaven. But this illusion is, um, or so this practice is alluded to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. When he tells the people in Corinth that they are to examine themselves. Peter and John, they are to examine the room. Make sure there's no leaven in it. They had to search very diligently for it. As we come to the Lord's Supper, what do we have to search for? What's liable to spoil the Lord's Supper? Sin. Inward sin. Tolerated sin. Comfortable sin. Our task, even as Peter and John prepared for their Passover, we have to prepare for our supper. 
And if we don't deal with our sin, we don't prepare for it. You and I, we've got to search our hearts before we go to the supper. And having examined ourselves, Paul says, eat. It's very important. Much more important than what Peter and John did. And that's preparation. And then there's the promise mentioned in verses 14 to 18. It was normal for the host to address the people that were gathered for the Passover. And Jesus, well, he, he's got something to say as well. It was certainly a very unusual thing he said. Because the host would normally have said something like, well, it's good for us to be here to remember the Exodus. Or it's good for us to be here to think about the power of our great God. But Jesus, as he makes his comments there in verses 15 and 16, he speaks about himself. And he tells them what he feels. I have earnestly desired. He tells them that he's going to suffer. So his mind is already focused on the cross. And he tells them in verse 16 about something remarkable that's going to happen. Because he says, I will not eat of it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God which he amplifies again in verse 18. He'll not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So we could say about Jesus that he is looking around. He's looking at the disciples who are there. He's actually looking within. He feels. He tells them what he feels. He's looking ahead to the short term, we might say, to the suffering of the cross. And he's looking ahead long term to something that's going to be the fulfillment of the Passover when full liberty will be provided for God's people. I mean, Jesus there tells them what he felt. And there is a certain sense in what a person feels tells us everything about them. A person can think and be totally detached from what they're thinking about. Persia may have plans, and their plans may not do anything to them at that moment. But feelings, that is where a person is 
And here's Jesus. And he tells the disciples what his feelings are. Nothing stoical about him. But he's also saying to them, there's going to be great times ahead. There's coming a wonderful meal. He speaks with great certainty. I'm going to suffer. But after that, there's going to be a celebration. What a strange connection. Suffering is going to lead to celebration. Global, eternal celebration. I am going to, says Jesus, I am going to bring about the fulfillment of everything the Passover spoke about. Liberty and freedom. Not merely from earthly powers, like the empires of Rome and Egypt and so on. But I'm going to give real, final, full freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom from death. And that's what Jesus tells them about. The future that Jesus has in mind, of course, is a physical future. Because he's going to drink of the fruit of the vine. And whatever else we say about drinking, it's a physical activity. So it's a wonderful promise, isn't it? When we gather next Sunday evening, we look back to his sufferings. But we are far closer to the fulfillment than even he was when he announced it. And we are to look ahead. We're to look ahead to deliverance. We're to look ahead to perfection. And the Lord's Supper points to that. It points to a marvelous physical experience in the world to come. Glorification involves our bodies. We'll drink of the fruit of the vine. Not for ten minutes or an hour or however long the Passover lasted for, but forever. And that's what the Lord's Supper tells us. all about a great promise. Then lastly, participation. Jesus, we're told a couple of times he gave thanks. We're not told what he said as he gave thanks. We're told he breaks the bread. We're not told how he broke it. We're not told where he broke it into two 
one half to this side of the table and that half to the other side? We're not told that. Or did he break it into 12 pieces? We're not told that. But we are told uh, what he said. And he says, we can see there from verse 19, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This represents my body. What about his body? It's been given. Given to what? Well, it's been given voluntarily, isn't it? I mean, he's saying this long before he's arrested. I'm giving my body for you. He's going to be a substitute, a willing substitute, a voluntary substitute. And he says to them, before he's actually died, of course, he says this to them, do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say that all subsequent times of the Lord's Supper will be done in remembrance of him after he has gone. But at this moment, when he's actually sitting there, he says to them at that particular time, as they take the bread on this first occasion of the Lord's Supper, he says to them, you, as you're here, Sitting with me, do it in remembrance of me. Is he not telling them? Remember who I am. As you take that piece of bread into your mouth at this precise moment on this Passover evening, remember who I am. I'm the Son of God who has come into the world to die for you. Remember that. We know what they were thinking about, don't we? They were thinking about which of themselves would be the greatest. Jesus says to them, remember who I am. Do it. Remembering who I am. The one who is going to suffer in your place. He also tells them to take the cup. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you. I mean, he's poured it. It's a new covenant in my blood. They are to take the cup after the bread, a communal 
on the visible partaking. You know, the Lord's Supper is not about Jesus and me. It can never be that. The Lord's Supper is always Jesus and us. The Lord's Supper is not about what I can get from it. The Lord's Supper is about what we can get. And Jesus is stressing that to them here. Because sadly we know from the other gospel accounts that they were focused on what they would individually get. So as we gather the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day, who are we to be thinking about? What's the order? It's not Jesus first and me second and others third. It's Jesus first. Others second, and then me third. It's a communal gathering, an indication of the company we are going to keep when a great eternal feast comes. A sample, a foretaste. A picture of the unity and a picture of the freedom that is yet to come. And lastly and briefly, it's all about the new covenant. The Passover has actually disappeared when we get to verse 20. Because the Passover is about the old covenant. But here we have a new covenant that Jeremiah predicted. And it's a marvelous covenant. Because it promises inner change. God's law will be written on our hearts. That means we'll love it. Everybody under the blessing of this covenant, Jeremiah says, will know God personally. All of them would be his people. They will be my people and I will be their God. And he also says that their sins, that they will be forgiven and forgotten. This new covenant means that we're new people, that we love God, that his law means everything to us, that we delight to obey it, that we increase in our knowledge of him, that we know him better each time we do it, and that all our sins the number of which only God knows, 
They've all been forgiven and forgotten. This feast that the next Sunday night that we're going to take part in together. What are we going to remember? It is good to remember we are sinners. But it might not be too good to remember all the sins we've done. We're dealing, we're meeting in the presence of the one who knows what, only what we have done, but what he has done. And he has forgiven us, pardoned us, and in a surprising manner, he has forgotten. He doesn't hold these sins against us. And we have to believe that. Imagine, we'll stop with this, but imagine Jesus saying to Peter, you're under the new covenant, Peter. I know that in a couple of hours' time, you're going to deny me three times. But you're under the new covenant. Your sins are forgiven. And they'll be when the new world comes. No one will remember them. No one's going to go up to Peter on this great future feast and say to him, I heard you denied Jesus three times. It's not going to happen. And the Lord's Supper for us next Lord's Day evening is a time to remember what Jesus did and the blessings that have come to us. So there was plots and there was preparation, a wonderful promise of glory ahead and there's this personal communal visible participation in which we focus on Jesus himself shall we pray